This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress. Sunday, July the 5th will be a unique day in the long history of Inglis when two major sales come together as traditional physical auctions at the world-class Riverside Complex at Warwick Farm. At 10am sharp, Easter Round 2 will get underway with 94 outstanding lots by world-class stallions like Brazen Bow, Deepfield, Dundeal, Exceed and Excel, Not a Single Doubt, Fastnet Rock, Frankel, I Am Invincible, Lonro, Schnitzel, Piero, and So You Think, with first season sires like American Pharaoh and Capitalist represented. Inglis have decided to bring the famous scone sale to Riverside this year with a catalogue of 156 lots. This auction will begin immediately after Easter Round 2 concludes. All horses will be at Riverside from Thursday, July 2nd for your inspection. Who would have thought the famous Easter sale would have a winter session? Who would have dreamed the popular scone sale would come to town? Inglis have taken extraordinary steps to accommodate vendors and buyers in extraordinary times. It's really happening. Easter Round 2 and the scone sale together under the same roof on Sunday, July 5th. And this is part two of our special trip down memory lane with a jockey who rode for one of the most powerful training operations in the history of Australian racing. Michael Attalak had raced 10 times overseas for Sheikh Hamdan. He won a race in Germany. He won a race in France over 3,000 metres, believe it or not. He had a good spell before he got going in Australia. He ran fourth in the Alistair Clark third in the Queen Elizabeth at Randwick, then a couple of average runs in Adelaide. Colin wasn't happy, turned him out again, and when he came back in the spring of 86, he was off and running. He was unplaced in the Liston, second in the Craig Lee, second in the Underwood, fourth in the Herbert Power, second in the Caulfield Cup. He won the McKinnon, and then came the Melbourne Cup of 1986 you drew 17. What sort of a chance did you give him coming into the race? Um, well, probably when you look back now, John, those first part of um, when he came to Australia, it took a while to acclimatise. Mm. But leading uh, into the Melbourne Cup, he ran second in the Caulfield Cup. And then um, he won the McKinnon Stakes. And um, oh, I think it was Roman Artis, a real good Sydney horse, fast horse, set the pace. And in the McKinnon, he just travelled, and and the idea was, you know, if he if he won the race, would be fantastic, but not to kill him, you know. Like, so he wins the McKinnon in record time, and just the way he did it, he just seemed to turn the corner of the horse, mm. and um, you know, leading into the Melbourne Cup, he drew wide, but um, we knew if we could save him, he had a real good turn of foot. It was more like a wait for age horse where he could really sprint, and um, and the distance was probably a little bit of a query, even though he'd won over 3,000. Yeah. But um, leading into the cup, we, we gave him a great chance and he just produced that day. Yep. Well, you got over pretty comfortably, it appeared, from the wide barrier. Uh, when you got outside the leader, did he come straight back to you? Did he relax? Well, he was he was pretty keen, John. He was one of those horses that if he had open air, you know, not a, not a backside to follow in front of you, he'd want to go a bit. 
So I remember, I think it was rising fear come around me yeah. and sort of give me that bit of cover. And as soon as he did, the horse just dropped the bit. Mm. And even though he was travelling well, he wasn't wanting to over-race too much. But um, it, it ended up for him the perfect position to be because mm. he wasn't far off the lead. And I knew if I could wait, he was going to show that turn of foot, yeah. in which he did. And he probably probably started to get a little bit tired the last 100 metres. But because yeah. um, he sort of put that gap on him, he was able to hang on. And yeah. what, a, what a thrill for me, John, or, you know, just to win the greatest race probably in Australia, but one of the greatest races in the world. And being a hometown boy and, and oh. wanting to be a jockey all your life, that was what, uh, you know, young blokes dream of. He dashed so quickly, Mike, when you pulled him out. I'll bet for one fleeting second you wondered if you'd got to the front too early. Oh, we all know how big Australia and, and Flemington, you, you met, I remember Kiwi winning the cup and, mm. you know, those horses can, the race can change a lot in the last 50 to 100 metres at Flemington because of the open spaces and, and it's a track that horses can run on. So I was a little bit mindful even though I'd got to the front and thought, well, you know, half home, but um, just so glad he hung on. Mm. Just to give people an idea of how he could sprint this horse at Talak, First up, he won the CF Or. Jean did the same thing, Michael, some years later. Uh, but he, he, as you said earlier, he could sprint like Special or Scarlet Bisque or one of those good sprinters. I think they're more... Jern uh, was probably similar. They, they could win weight for age races, Johnny. Mm. So I remember I ran third in the Melbourne Cup on a horse called Coots, right? Mm. And they're more of those English one-pace stayers. Mm where Jern and, and Atalak had the ability to win at weight for age. So they had that bit more class and that bit more turn of foot. And, and that's why, you know, they uh, were such great horses. You know, Atalak went to stud. He did a pretty good job too, you've got to say, in hindsight. Curious thing though, Michael, he, he got 25 stakes winners. I don't think any of them won beyond 2,400 metres and yet he won a Melbourne Cup. Yes, yeah. That when, when we say that, Johnny, I don't think he was like a genuine two-miler, like even though he definitely won or, you know, win the Melbourne Cup. But I think his best distance was probably around the 2,000. Yeah. Shake Hamdan sent another one to Colin Hayes later, who'd had 15 runs in Great Britain, Ireland, France and Germany for eight wins, including a Group 1 in Germany, and do you know on that occasion he was ridden by the legendary American jockey Steve Cawthon? Now, sadly, when Al Murad came to Australia, he was to have only four runs here before breaking down. He ran second in the Craig Lee. Your brother Gary rode him that day. And then Michael jumps on and you go bang, bang, bang. Three group ones, Underwood, Caulfield Stakes, Cox Plate. Well, I think back... If, if I'm right, John, back then when uh, Al Murad came to Australia, he was the highest-rated European horse to ever come here. Mm. Um, Gary rode him in the Craigley Stakes and um, a mile, and Gary said to me, God, this is a real good horse. And mm. I was lucky enough to jump on him in the oh, the Caulfield Stakes and then the Underwood and the Cox Plate. Mm. But he was the only horse that um, there wouldn't have been much between him at his best and a horse like Better Loosen Up. Yeah. But... Um, like when he won the Cox Plate, John, I remember like leading up to it, he'd won the, as I said, the Underwood, the Caulfield Stakes. So he had the form, 
And he drew, I think I drew one, and Stylish Entry, which we all know what, what a great horse he was, and uh, Kevin was on him, and he went to the front, and I sort of had that drag up, but I was giving him like 10 kilos. You know, I had 58 and a half, and he had 48 and a half. And, um, you know, to pick him up was amazing, and, um, you know, we've seen the form out of that. Uh, Stylish Entry come out and won the Victorian Derby by many lengths a week later. Mm. We'll just pause there for a moment, Michael, and clear a break on the podcast back after this. The Clarence River Jockey Club proudly presents its historic July double, the Ramoni Handicap on Wednesday, July the 8th, and the Grafton Cup on Thursday, July 9th, on one of Australia's best country racecourses. The 1,200-metre listed Ramoni, first run in 1910, will carry a purse of $200,000, and the same prize money will be available, 2,350-metre Grafton Cup, which also had its beginnings in 1910. Traditionally, both races attract metropolitan standard fields. In an ordinary year, the two-day Grafton Festival would attract people from all over the nation. In its heyday, the Grafton Cup Carnival generated huge crowds and a Melbourne Cup atmosphere. In 1972, when Big Butch won the Cup, 102 bookmakers fielded on the day. I've known people who haven't missed a Grafton Cup Carnival in 30 or 40 years. There's something about the Jacaranda City, there's something about the atmosphere of the Grafton Racecourse, and there's something about the legend of the great Ramoni Handicap Grafton Cup Double. These two showcase days on the country calendar will be covered on Sky One, Sky Thoroughbred Central and Sky Sports Radio. You were devastated when Al Murad went wrong and had to miss the Melbourne Cup. You really thought it was a matter of going around. Oh, I, I mean, look, you can never say that in any race, but, but the confidence levels were pretty high. I remember um, after the Cox Bait, the boss was going to wait, you know, running straight into the Melbourne Cup. And I reckon it was the breakfast with the stars morning. I galloped him and he sort of faltered over a crossing and he unfortunately pulled up lame and, and that ended his career. But the same year we had Kutz, right? And... Um, uh, as I say, Kutz to me was a, a good horse. That th- this year, uh, when I missed the ride on Almorad, the boss said, well, you might as well ride Kutz. That's our only other runner. Mm. And I actually went third, beating yeah. probably two lengths on him. Mm. And I got to the front, and, and as I say, Kutz was an English, like, old sayer, and, and he could just maintain the one pace of the race. And... Um, and Unfortunately, I think if Almorad had run that year, even though he had more weight, the difference between him and Kudz was like chalk and cheese. Yeah, you know, like oh, you know, I'm talking massive amount of lengths, and um, mm. you know, people say, oh, that's the one that got away, but it's not really. Um, you know, it just sort of happened, and that's part of racing. You rode Zabil, a good enough racehorse to win the Group One Australian Guineas, but a phenomenal sire who gave us octagonal, he gave us might and power, efficient, sky heights, Savabil, Jezebel, Maldivian who won a Cox Plate. He sired 43 Group 1 winners, Michael. I think it's fair to say that he was a better stallion than he was a racehorse, but he did win at Group 1. 
Yeah, but Johnny, he was one of those horses. I remember I rode him in the AJC Derby, and I think he ran third, and, and it was a wet track, right? And then he came back to Melbourne, and his next preparation, he ran into a few wet tracks, and he was a horse that didn't like wet tracks. But he was one of the most magnificent-looking horses that I'd ever rode, and I know the boss had such a massive opinion of him early on. You know, um, he, he had the potential to be a better loosen-up or one of those, but he unfortunately went amiss. Um, so he didn't. He wasn't over-raced, and through injury, he, he had to be retired, and he turned out to be probably one of the or the best stallion we've ever had for so long. Mm-hmm. You rode in an era of great jockeys in Melbourne, Mick Mallion, Darren Gauchy, Brent Thompson, Pat Highland, and the incomparable Roy Higgins, who was coming to the end of it just as you were getting a foothold. Roy well, Higgins was your idol, Mike, and you were deeply honoured to ride in the race in which Roy had his final ride. Yeah, that's correct. And See, I had many great memories of, of Roy Higgins, not just out of respect as a rider, but as we came from Sydney as a family, and I remember many times on a Sunday we'd go to Roy's and, and Janine's wife and kids, and there'd be a barbecue and the Highlands would be there. So Roy was one of those blokes, and even though we were, we were battlers, he was just uh, a real great family man, not just to his own, but to many others. So when I became the jockey, and he'd be someone I'd ask for advice, and um, he was always willing to help, and he, he did the same not just for me, for many jockeys. And uh, yes, yeah, sadly missed, but he was one of the greats. And you know, in Sydney, you had the you had the same sort of thing. Ronnie Quinton's held in those regard, regards, Beeman, yeah. Marshall, those sort of blokes. But um, it was a tough era to ride against Johnny because there were so many great older jockeys that uh, had that experience on you. Roy's door was always open, Michael, and you tell one very good story about the morning you went to see him after you'd copped a suspension for careless riding and you actually took the video around to get him to look at the replay to get his opinion. Yes, he lived then in Stanley Street, right? right? So I'd spoken to him the night before and he said, come around in the morning and have a cup of coffee when you finish track work and I'll bring the video so I knocked on the door and Roy opened with his dressing gown on. I'll never forget he had a cigar. We went in and had a coffee, right? And um, and watched the video and he said, oh, I'll play that again. He said, um, you know, he looked at it a couple of times and his advice was, if I was you, I'd go and withdraw your appeal and uh, it's a wonder you didn't get six weeks instead of four. <laughs> so I... <laughs> <laughs> it was great for advice, but I yeah. immediately withdrew my appeal. But as I say, I, I know back in those days he did the same for many jockeys, and mm. and the gouts used to go for him, do him for advice, and you know you, you knew you were, were going to get the right answer. Yeah, Mike, you rode over fifty Group One winners, but only two of them in Sydney. You won the All Age Stakes on Eastern Classic, and you won the Sedgenhoe on the old champ better loosen up. Does that get up your nose? Not really, Johnny. Like, um, don't worry, it was pretty hard back in those days. You'd go to Sydney and ride because uh, you had so many great jockeys there and um, and it was difficult. And, you know, we, we were going there with uh, teams of horses over the years, but it was it was hard and competitive. And, um, no, that's just how it ended up. But, um, no, many great memories in Sydney, actually, but... Uh, 
yeah, it was tough. And, and so many great jockeys, Johnny. Like back then, you know, you had Dittman, uh, Quinton, Ols, you know, like wonderful jockeys died. There was, there was heaps of them. Now, in the end, was there a falling out with the Lindsay Park operation? Uh, well, did, your your arrangement, your association with them, it just seemed to fade away. Well, I look back now, and I think it was pretty difficult just them having one jockey. You know, I was riding the ninety nine percent of the horses, but what happened was, um, David said to me, he said, "Look." You know, some of the owners don't want you to ride the horses that before this jockey and that, and he he was in a position where they don't want to lose horses, right? Mm. So that's what happened, um, uh, and I think it was really difficult for one trainer to to say, right, he's riding my horses because it doesn't suit everyone, and um, you know, I think today you see uh, these stables using many jockeys that they think will suit their horses and. Um, and like if a horse they think will be suited ridden back by this jockey, not this jockey, or ridden in the lead by this jockey or not that jockey, it's an easier way to go and it keeps all the owners happy and I think that's what virtually happened with me. Mm. Well, the last five or six years of your riding career were spent overseas and that's another reason people think you've been gone for such a long time. You rode in Hong Kong as a club jockey, you had a stint in Singapore uh, you found racing in Singapore very well run and very professional. You also had contracts in Dubai and that bustling little place called Mauritius. Uh, in fact, that's where you had your final ride, Michael. That's uh, that's dinner party trivia. Where did Michael Clark have his last ride? Mauritius. Well, Johnny, yeah, I, like obviously when you when you're not riding for such a powerful stable here, I thought, well, I got the opportunity to go overseas. Uh, um, Sheikh Mohammed, actually, not Sheikh Hamdan, who won the cup for, uh, offered me a contract there, which I took up. And it was like for about six and a half months of the season, John. And then uh, uh, when their summer is on in Dubai, they stop racing because of the heat. And I was lucky enough... Um, Miles Plum actually got me, uh, he was the foreman for Satish Seymour there for that stable. And then as that season finished, I got offered a contract in Mauritius. So I ride there for the other five and a half months of the year. Then I went back to Dubai after Mauritius finished. So it was a good job to have um, and so glad that I did it. Uh, Mauritius is only a small island, but it's the second oldest racing in the world. Um uh, and and can be lucrative if you're with the right stable and, and the results are there. You and Janelle have a tremendous common interest now with the career of young Michael. He's going to give you many, many highs and you're getting to most of the meetings now when he's in action. Well, um, we, we worry about his driving, John, in the sense of uh, the, the travelling. So... Before he had his license, me or his mum would take him or one would take him or go with him because, you know, he's up early every morning, four o'clock working, and then might have to go to trials at Ballarat or Camperdown or Coleraine or anywhere, and that was happening a lot. And then from there, he's got to go back to the races, and um, so there's a lot of driving involved, and we sort of worry about that. Uh, now he's got his own license, a little bit easier, but one of us usually go with him just to keep him company or do the driving. Is he still asking advice occasionally? Oh, he does, and, and, and sort of 
we, or, uh, when I grew up, as I say, I had my father, but my two brothers that were jockeys that would watch each race, and, and especially my brother Gary, he'd go over and, and say, maybe you could have done this, maybe you could have done that. And we, I, I try to do the same with Michael, but we, we don't tell him how to ride a horse because that's up to the trainer and the owner, right? Yeah. But just to go over his races and say, well, you know, mate, tap, pat him on the back. He did a great job here, and that was fantastic. But other rides, if, he, if there's, thing, uh, there's something he could improve on, but one good thing, John, he's at a stage now where he can watch a race and say, well, you know, maybe I should have done this, and, mm. and, and he's learning that he can watch his own mistakes and get better. That's called maturity. Exactly, exactly. But a lot of jockeys, not just or outside of me or ex-jockeys, but jockeys today, Craig Williams has been sensational to Michael and, and many others. You know, even, even Damien, they'll pull him outside or Michael will go there and ask for advice. And they're all fantastic now because, um, you know, they're sort of willing to help young Michael and, and other, uh, other young apprentices um, to give them advice. A lot of people have been asking after you in recent years, and I hope most of those people are in a position to join us on the podcast for an interview that I've enjoyed enormously. Michael Clark, you had a very distinguished career, and you left a lot of race fans with some very special memories. Great to catch up. Pleasure, John. This podcast was produced by Supernova Sound. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress.